morning, everyone. So glad that you're here again. We'd love to welcome you back again. So fun to see everybody engaging together. You know, uh, all of the research in church world says that everybody's least favorite part of church is the meet and greet. Well, it's our favorite at Watermark. I think most places may have trouble getting people to actually talk to each other. Here we have trouble getting you to stop, which was a great thing to have happen. Hey, my name is Garrett. It's great to see you this morning. If we've never met before, I serve on staff with our young adults ministry here. It's called The Porch. It meets on Tuesday night. And uh, what we um, get a chance to do there is see lives change consistently. And it's all due um, to God. But it's great to be hanging out with you um, on a Sunday uh, on a Sunday morning just as a Fort Worth family. We're in the second week of a three-part series on conflict. Now I'm going to start with a story. My sister called me uh, not too many months ago, and she was absolutely outraged. I mean, she was angry. And she said, somebody stole $300 from me. I said, oh, no, not that. That's terrible. I hate that. What would you do? She said, well, I went to my bank statement, and I looked to see, you know, where it happened. And it was a gas station ATM. I was like, oh, somebody got your debit card. What a bummer. I mean, you should really shut that down. You should do something. I said, well, what would you do next? She said, well, I went to the gas station, and I asked them to see the tape. I was like, that's pretty intense. I'm impressed. And she said, and guess what? I said, what? She said, it was our cousin. And so I hit the mute button and said, <laughs> it's our cousin. And then I took it off mute and I said, that's terrible. I'm so sorry that that happened. Which, by the way, if, if you're worried that your family might have too much drama or you're like, I don't know if we're going to fit in at church, would like to welcome you home to Watermark. <laughs> Where we won't steal your money, but if somebody does, we may talk about it in public. So... I said, oh, no, that's just terrible. And I, I said, how did you, I mean, are you sure it was her? And she said, yes, I'm sure. And these were best buds. I mean, these are friends. You know, these are tight people, first cousins and everything. And so she said, uh, she said yes, I'm certain it was her. It was clearly her. And I remember, like, I, I let her borrow my debit card, like, go get gas or something. And I said, okay. And I said, well, what are you going to do now? And she said, um, well, I'm just going to end the relationship. I'm done. You know, if you cross me like that, I'm just done. So I <laughs> got to hit mute and you know you used to have to hold the phone away from your face and kind of muffle your laugh a little bit now you just hit mute and go to town and so I muted it laughed again unmuted it and I said all right look let's just think about that what percentage of your friends are going to disappoint you at some point in your life and uh, she said correctly 100% and I said okay if 100% of the people that you're in a relationship with in your life are going to disappoint you and as soon as they do, you just end the relationship. How many friendships or relationships do you actually end up with? And she correctly said, zero. And I said, well, look, I know for two reasons there's probably no chance you're going to listen to me. And I know I am way removed from the situation. I know in the heat of the moment, I hear a lot of heat of the moment coming out in what you're saying. And I know you're frustrated. And I know that I'm your older brother, which means you're not going to listen to me. And I know I work at a church as a pastor. And so you're, you hear this kind of stuff all the time. And I know you're, I'm the last person you're going to listen to. But I just would like to say, before you end the relationship in the heat of the moment, I would love for you to reconsider. Because the same thing is true here. That's true in every relationship in your life. When the heat of the conflict gets turned up, you have two choices with the relationship. You can keep it or you can lose it. And so I would love for you to think about that. And thankfully, uh, they did choose to reconcile. My sister, uh, to her credit, uh, did choose to forgive. They did move toward each other. And the friendship is back on. Thick as thieves, you might say. So they're back. So I'd, I'd love to talk this morning about one little specific part of conflict, one little narrow part of the conflict experience. I'm not going to try to cover the whole conflict experience. I'm going to try to talk about one little narrow but very, very important part of the conflict experience. If you win in this little part of conflict, if you win the battle against yourself, 
in this one little part of conflict, the victory will seem small. But if you lose the battle that I'm going to talk about today, the losses will be huge. And I'm going to talk today about the heat of the moment. What do you do in the heat of conflict? The heat of the moment is when your emotions go high. The heat of the moment is when you're really frustrated. The heat of the moment is when you're angry. The heat of the moment is when somebody has been wrong. Maybe some somebodies have been wrong. Maybe somebody's been wrong for a long time and it is high time for you to be right. You've got a case and you are correct and there is no question about it and you are justified and you are putting your foot down and the buck stops here and you are just there. That's the heat of the moment. And what you do in those moments matters a lot. And if you win the victory of keeping it together and kind of staying composed, the victory seems really small and maybe nobody would even notice. But if you lose the battle against the heat of the moment, if you become engulfed in the flames yourself and the anger or the emotion takes over, the losses can be absolutely huge for you and your relationships. So I'm going to talk today about the heat of the moment. Now look, we've all seen uh, in our own lives and for others uh, what happens when that battle for self-control, when the frustrations are high, uh, we've seen what happens. So we've all sent that fiery email, you know, that we should have waited on. Uh, we've all said something to that boss or that friend that, like, I, I probably should have waited that one out. Should have slept on that one, you know. We've all seen that happen. And then those, those cases are pretty easy. You know, you walk in, you apologize, you say, hey, I shouldn't have done that. It was a moment of frustration. And then you just kind of get back on track. But the stakes sometimes can be much higher. Some of you may have grown up in a situation where you see your parents, you saw your parents, had these massive meltdowns, these explosive, huge arguments. That it felt like the heat of the moment. I mean, it almost felt like, when is there a cool moment? I mean, there's just constant turmoil. And as a child, you could see it so clearly. Even as a kid, you, you could tell, hey, the point here is not, or the problem here is not the content of the conversation. The main problem here is it's just explosive. The heat of the moment has completely taken over. Sometimes entire marriages are not just affected, but sometimes they're lost. Not because the good times aren't great, but just because the heat of the moment was too much, too often, too frequently, too hot. And nobody could seem to manage when that frustration would rise up. Nobody could seem to do the right thing next. People end up in court, in prison because of the heat of the moment. Some of the moments you regret most in life, think about this, how powerful is this? Some of the moments that you regret most in life, some of your biggest relational mistakes that you kind of think about when you get the low light reel going, some of those things are things that you don't even believe anymore. Things you said that you don't even believe anymore. In fact, you didn't even believe them an hour later. But they came out and now you're having trouble convincing someone that you care about most that you don't really think that, that it was just a moment of frustration. Because when you lose the battle in the heat of the moment, you convince them that you finally just said what you've always thought. Instead, when you said something that you have never thought. That's the power of the heat of the moment. And I want to hear today from someone who is the brother of Jesus. His name is James. And at some point, James became convinced that his brother was God. Which is a great defense for the Christian faith, if you think about it. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? But James became convinced that his brother, Jesus, is God. And he became a follower of Jesus, and he became a leader of the early church. And he wrote many letters um, to the church. We have one of them, and it is called the Book of James. They got creative when they titled it, the Book of James. So we're going to read from the Book of James today, and we're going to hear what he has to say. He has lots to say about helping the church with all kinds of things, including... You guessed it, the heat of the moment in the midst of conflict. I can't wait for you to hear it. Here's what he has to say. This is James 1, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. So some people are note takers. Some people aren't note takers. 
James says everybody's a note taker on this one. Brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. You should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to speak. Now, here's the thing about the heat of the moment. It just comes right out. It's the hardest thing you could possibly do to actually stop and listen rather than to speak. But James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak. Very slow. Now, I have to confess, before I go any further, um, I don't like slow anything. I don't want to be a hypocrite up here. I would just like you to know I get in trouble when I rush. I don't like slow anything. I don't like slow restaurants. I don't like slow drivers in the left lane or any lane. Uh, I don't like slow anything. Speed has, I don't like slow conversations. So speed, as much as anything, has gotten me into more trouble than anything else in my life. All right? And so I don't like slow. I just want to let you know uh, I am a struggler when it comes to this text. But James says be really, 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 really slow to speak. And why would he say that? I think it's because slow gives you time to study. Slow gives you time to learn. Slow gives you time to gather information, gather perspective. My dad uh, loves golf. He watches a lot of it. Uh, I can't watch very much of it. It's a little too uh, slow for me. And so he watches a lot of it. And uh, what, he, what I've noticed is, I don't know a lot about golf. I played a little bit, but I know this is the pattern. They hit the ball hundreds of yards not very precise. I mean, they whack this ball forever, but then finally the ball lands on a green, which is like a landing area, maybe the size of this stage, maybe smaller, sometimes much bigger. And when the ball lands on the green, all of a sudden the game slows down and becomes a lot more studious. So here's what they do. There's a little hole in the ground that they're trying to gently tap the ball into. I'm just speaking as if you've never seen a game of golf in your life. But there's a hole in the ground, say it's right here, and then let's say their ball lands about right here. Well, they'll just do something amazing. They'll come back behind their ball, and they'll look. And then they'll look more. And then you look up and you need a new haircut and they're still looking at the ball. And then they'll squat down and then they'll get their friend to come look at it. And then they'll have a conversation about what they see. And then, and then, most interesting, listen to this, then they walk on the other side. The entire other side. It takes a long time to walk. There's not even a ball over here. The ball's on the other side of the hole. And they do the same thing. They just sit here and look and they study. Now, why would they walk from here to there? Not because the first information wasn't true, but because the first information wasn't enough. It's not that they necessarily disbelieved what they saw from the first perspective. They just knew their information wasn't complete until they saw from the other end. The problem with the heat of the moment is not that your information or your narrative or your frustration or your point or your case, the problem with the heat of the moment is not that it's no longer automatically false. Just because you get frustrated, your point still might be true. The way you see the situation, the way you see the conflict, it might still be completely true. And just because you're frustrated doesn't mean that it's not true anymore. The lie of the heat of the moment is that your information, you start to believe, is enough. That's the problem. Not that just because you get frustrated that you're automatically wrong. It's that we start to believe that our information is enough. And there's somebody standing on the other side and they believe their information is enough. And you can imagine how that goes. And listen to what comes next. You already know. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and then here's the next step. If that doesn't happen, slow to become what? Say it with me. Slow to become angry, of course, because anger is the voice of the unheard. If you've got two teachers and no listeners, if you've got two speakers and no listeners, if you've got no learners 
in the room, then you're going to get two people that are completely and utterly frustrated at each other. Here is how you get two perfectly sane people driving each other crazy, maybe even calling each other crazy. It's when one person has a little piece of truth that they're committed to with their whole being, and then another person who's got a piece of truth and they're committed to it with their whole being, and they're probably, they might even both be right, they might even both be reasonable, they might even both be true. But what happens is, is no one is heard. So what happens is, is we want to feel sane. So therefore, after a few exchanges that are ineffective, where I'm talking about my point and you're talking about your point, all of a sudden you get two sane people who, in order to feel sane, have to convince themselves the other person is insane. And you start to say things like, well, he's just crazy. Or, well, she's just crazy. Well, that's just irrational. That's just off the wall. Well, it might not be. It might be that you haven't yet taken the time to walk around and see from another perspective. It might be that your truth, even though true in a conflict, is not exhaustive. No matter how true your frustration may be, no matter how justified it is, you, the truth is, is your information is not enough. Does the other person need your perspective in a conflict? Yes. Do you need theirs? James says, first. You need their perspective first. You need to gather more information. Because if you get angry, here's the big because. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is what you sacrifice when you get into the heat of the moment and the heat of the moment kind of wins and you want to be right worse than anything else. Ironically, it says you lose the rightness that God desires for you. I think it's interesting that he uses the word righteousness. Because isn't that how the conflict starts? Isn't that where the heat of the moment comes from? We want to be right. We want to feel right. And the thing that continues to get us amped up and get that, that emotion going is we want to be right and we feel right and the other person's wrong and the more time goes on, the more you're convinced that they are just a boat of wrong floating through your sea of right. And God says, if you let yourself get angry, what's going to happen is you're going to lose your rightness. Sometimes when you feel the most right, you might be the most wrong because of your anger. If you feel unheard, that's the reflex you're all going to feel. But James is trying to warn you. If you're quick to speak and not quick to listen, the other person might do the same thing. And if that happens, then you're both probably going to be quick to become angry. And if that happens, you both lose, and you already know that. You lose what God wants for you. And ironically, you lose the rightness that you want for you. Right in the middle of a conflict. That's the power of the heat of the moment. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. I want to make a, uh, I want to make a, a turn here um, for the rest of the message. I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to speak really practically about what to do next. Because some of you are very practical and you're thinking, okay, what do I do now? All right, quick to listen. You can't listen forever. I mean, you have to eventually say something in the conflict. You've got to push the ball forward. You've actually got to make moves. You've got to make decisions. And you've actually got to start to speak. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to turn the next um, few minutes together um, into maybe even a little bit of a TED Talk format or maybe even a workshop. And what you can do is I'd love to just offer everything I can offer you over the next couple minutes. And you can take what's helpful and you can leave the rest. Quick to listen is certainly the first thing you need to do whenever the heat of the moment has struck. But what do you do then? I'm going to give you three things, and that's how we'll finish our time. Number one, sort the conflict. Number two, contain the conflict. 
And number three, reconcile the conflict. Number one, sort the conflict. Number two, contain the conflict. And number three, reconcile the conflict. Here we go. Number one, sort the conflict. What does that mean? It means decide whether it's even too small to be a real conflict. First, you have to decide, hey, is this even big enough to really matter? Is this even big enough to really bother? Or is this the small stuff? Nobody wants to do the small stuff. Nobody wants to invest all their energy and all their relationships and all this uh, effort into the small stuff. None of us want to do that. In fact, that's how we insult each other in a conflict, isn't it? You're just being petty. That's just petty. Nobody wants to be petty. The conflict field guide at Watermark is a, is a document we've been using for years to help us with this, and it calls it this way, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. If it's small stuff, don't even sweat it. So before you move forward in the conflict, first just make sure it's a real conflict. Because if it's not, you don't want to waste your energy on it. You don't want to be that petty person who is bothered. So you're like, what's a small offense? Small offense would be like, hey, they're five to ten minutes late to a meeting. They go five miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, they make community group go a little bit too long. You know, now repeat it. That can be an offense. I'm just going to let you know. But if that, just ha- if that just happens to happen, you know, every once in a while, that's, that's small stuff. And what the Bible says to do with it is actually to not address the small stuff. Can you believe that? Proverbs 19:11. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It is to one's credit to overlook an offense. And so the Bible says if you're, if you're a person who goes around and you're, and you're easily bothered, you know, and like every little thing bothers you and you just find yourself kind of easily frustrated at the little things that people do around you, it is not to your credit. But if you can be a person who gives other people wide lanes of grace to run in or walk in or drive in, then that's to your credit. Because people are going to throw little small annoyances at you constantly. It's no different in church. Some of you are new to Watermark, and you're like, is that true here too? Yes, okay? Everybody, every human being eventually is going to throw little things at you. And the Bible says if you can overlook it, you should. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Don't sweat the small stuff. But as you sort the conflict, sometimes you're going to find that it is not small stuff. Sometimes it's dishonoring to God which kind of automatically puts it in the big stuff bucket. Sometimes it hurts relationships. Sometimes someone's doing something that's hurting people around them, maybe even hurting you, and that automatically puts it in the, hey, that's significant side of things. Sometimes people are doing things that are actually harmful to themselves in the midst of all that, and that automatically sorts the conflict in the more significant side of things, not in the overlook category. And so as you sort the conflict, you really got two options. You can either overlook it, Or you can move towards number two and number three, which is to contain the conflict and then reconcile the conflict. Here's a way you can think about sorting the conflict. It works a little bit like bad food. Um, We've all, um, well, maybe you have not. And if you haven't, that would be amazing. But most of us have had bad food at a restaurant, and there's some consequences to that, you know, down the road. And, uh, you know, there's kind of two ways that can go. Um, One is, uh, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable for like an hour or two. And you're like, oh, man, I think they did something wrong. You think it was the food? I don't know. I, it must have been. That just doesn't feel very good. But I think I'm going to be able to ride it out. Like, it's going to be okay. I think it's just going to be some discomfort. And then there's this entirely different category. That's where you eat the food, and you immediately know that is coming back up with conviction. All right? Like, this, is, this food, I'm going to see that again. Like, it, is, it feels bad. Like, it's going to come out. And so when you feel that... 
you automatically know. Now think about this in terms of conflict. If someone, um, sometimes people will bother you, you know, they'll do something that's just frustrating. And uh, if that happens and you go, you know what, yes, that was not the most considerate move. Um, yes, I feel like I should have been invited to that. Um, yes, I feel like they should have been a little more polite. Um, if it's small, or they should have been a little more polite. If it's small like that, it might be like the, hey, the hour or two thing where you're like, okay, it's a little uncomfortable, but it's going to end up okay. But if it's something big, you know, if it keeps coming back up again and, and again in your mind, that's the big stuff. If you're wondering, that's the big stuff. It is. If it keeps rising to the surface in your mind, if you're driving down the road and you're having imaginary conversations, and you're winning awesome arguments with everybody watching, that's the big stuff, you know? If you're driving down the road and you're like, well, she deserves it. Well, somebody's got to say something. You know, I mean, if you're driving down the road and you're having this conversation with yourself, that is the big stuff, I promise, all the time, 100% of the time. If it is affecting you, if you tend to avoid, you're like, oh, they're here, I'm going that way, that is the big stuff. There is a problem there. It's hurting their their relationship, maybe with you. And so the first step is you got to sort the conflict. Is the conflict overlookable? Truly? Is it overlookable? Because if it is, you should overlook it. It'll be to your credit. If it's not, if it's coming back up in your mind and you can tell there's a little bit of energy there and some angst there and the heat of the moment kind of comes up every time you think about it, then that's the big stuff. And you should move on down the road of the conflict resolution process. So number one, sort the conflict. First, decide. Sort the conflict. Number two, contain the conflict. This is so big. Please listen to this. If you don't listen to anything else today, you should listen to this. Contain the conflict. That means do not talk about it to uninvolved people. Do not address your grievances with a person to a person who is not them. I don't know why this is, but there's just something in all of us that wants to do this. I don't know what it is. I don't know uh, what to call it, uh, but there's just some reflex inside of all of us that when person A offends us, we go to person B. And we're like, can you believe person A? Unbelievable. You know, there's just something in us that we don't naturally respond back to the actual offender. When somebody frustrates us, it's just natural for us to go to everybody else or maybe just one other person, you know, your safe place, if you will, and talk to it, talk to them about it. We've all got it. It's all there. But it is crucial, crucial not to spread our conflicts. We want to contain the conflict, all right? You don't want it to spread like wildfire throughout a room or throughout a church or throughout a family or throughout an organization. That just doesn't work well. Contain, contain, contain the conflict. Why? Because the Bible says a whisperer separates close friends. A whisperer or a gossip separates close friends. You're going to actually separate people. If you do that, because you're going to affect what person B thinks about person A. while they're not even there. And that's not fair to them. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. And you're actually going around hurting relationships. Did you know a church is nothing but a web? Or nothing if not a web of relationships. You show me unhealthy relationships, I'll show you an unhealthy church. You show, you show me healthy relationships, I'll show you a healthy church. And if you run around, run around whispering your grievances and you don't contain your conflicts, you are going to weaken Not only your relationships, because you affect other people's opinion of you, but you're going to weaken the church itself. That's the power of gossip and whispering. And the biggest defense, I hear this one, um, the biggest defense of someone who is a committed gossip is they say, well, I only speak the, the truth. I only speak the truth. Well, listen, Proverbs 16, 28 doesn't say a liar separates close friends. It says a whisperer separates close friends. So your whispered, suggestive truths are separating close friends. That's the problem. Now think about this. It's worse that it's true. 
you're secretly saying people's worst about them. How powerfully discouraging to say the true things about someone that are negative. That sounds more like Satan than God. Satan's called the accuser of the brothers. Don't join him. Don't speak evil or suggested frustration and spread your conflict. Contain the conflict. Here's a good rule of thumb. Do not discuss a problem to someone unless you are making them a part of the solution. So if you need to go talk to a third party, don't discuss the problem with a person unless you're going to make them a part of the solution. Okay? That could be from a counseling you perspective. That could be from a coming with you perspective. But do not invite someone into a problem that involves someone else unless you are making that third party now a part of the solution. Now here's the problem on this one. Um, we're really sneaky about this. We cover up the way we spread conflict really, really, really well. Nobody ever just comes out and says, hey, I'm about to whisper and I'm going to separate some close friends here. Nobody does that. Nobody throws the warning sign out there. Hey, I'm about to gossip. Nobody does that. That's not the way we work. We've got a variety of ways that we, uh, that we cover this up. Here are a few of them. You might recognize some of these. Um, one is the prayer request. That's the laughter of the guilty right there. All right, the prayer request. Here it is. Guys, please pray for my wife. You know, she's super disrespectful and curses at me. I think she's got, a, I think she's got an anger problem. Uh, please pray for her. She's really struggling. That's not a prayer request. That's you not containing your conflict. That's you speak. Did you know that when you do that, you're actually shaping what other people think about your wife and you're going to regret that later? And guess who's going to find out? Her. You lose. All right, you can't do that. Don't. Spread your conflict in that way. Here's another way we covered up. False concern. I'm just really concerned. You know, sounds like this. Hey, I'm worried about my roommate. You know, he just eats up all my food and then disappears for days on end. He's super antisocial. I'm really worried about him. You're not worried. You're frustrated. You're spreading the conflict. He's eating all your food and is super antisocial and you don't like it. You're not concerned. That's gossip. Here's another one. False pity. Here's how we cover up. Spreading conflict, false pity. I also call this one nasty nice. Nasty nice is whenever you say bless their heart and that's your permission slip to say whatever you want to about them after that. <laughs> oh, bless their heart. Oh, bless her heart. Bless her heart. She's just a little slow. You can't say that. You can't say, you can't say bless their heart and then say whatever you want to say. You can't do that. It doesn't, you, that's not your permission slip. You cannot do that. That is gossip. That's not concern. Oh, Okay, here's my, uh, here's my least favorite one. Self-therapy, also known as the vent. Hey, I just needed to get that off my chest. Hey, thanks for being a safe place for me. Sound familiar? Hey, I just needed to vent to someone. I would love to share this with you. The Bible uses the word vent about people twice. Sometimes it uses the word vent about God venting his frustration onto evil people. But it uses the English word vent about people venting in the way we normally use it twice. I want you to see both of them. This is super important. This is, worth, this is a street worth walking down. We're talking about sorting our conflicts and then containing our conflicts. And I know the vent has kind of made its way somehow into Christian reality when it's not. And so I would love for you to interact with both times the Bible talks about venting. All right, I'd love for you to see them for yourself. The first is when, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> the first, Satan's trying to keep this back. It's not going to happen. You need to hear this. <clears throat> the first is in the book of Job. Now, if you happen to know the book of Job, Job was having a really bad time in life, 
And he had some friends around him who were no friends at all. They had bad theology, and they gave him bad counsel. And the youngest and dumbest of the friends around Job, who was giving the worst counsel, kind of gave a little warning that he was about to speak. So this is all the way in Job chapter 32. And so if you've read Job, they kind of kick it around the circle a bunch of times. It's a conversation between about four people. And the youngest and most foolish is getting ready to speak. And here's how he announces himself. Listen to this. I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. Why? Because your opinion's good? Nope. Look what's next. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. I mean, I just can't help it. I mean, everything inside me just says I have to speak. I'm full of words. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. Now, we don't do this anymore because we've invented glass bottles. But a long time ago, they would put wine in a skin and it would actually expand. And what this young man is saying, this is not Job's voice. This is a young, foolish man who's about to give counsel when it would be better to be quiet. He says, my opinions are expanding inside of me. I have to say something. If I don't say anything, I'm going to explode. You ever felt that way? Oh, I just got to get this off my chest. I got to say something. And then he says, listen to this. This will show you something's wrong. He says, I must speak that I may find relief. I must speak that I may find relief. Not I must speak to help the situation. Not I must speak in order to actually do something productive. Not I must speak in order to build up the body of Christ. I must speak that I may find relief. Do you hear that? This is self-therapy for him. I must open my lips and answer. And then comes out a bunch of foolishness. He just can't help himself. His opinions are rising up. This is not a compliment in the Bible. This is, not a tri- this is an example of what not to do from the Bible. I must speak that I may find relief. That's the first time the Bible says the word vent. The second time is more direct. Here it is. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. This version on the screen says, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring a calm, bring calm in the end. Those are the only two times the English word vent is, appears in the NIV or the ESV. The only two times. So I would just love for everybody to answer with conviction, one word answer, super easy. Is there such a thing as a Christian vent? No, it, does, it absolutely does not exist. It is nowhere in the Bible. There is no such thing. It causes harm, and you are going the way of the fool if you just have to get your spirit out there. There is no such thing as cornering someone and saying, hey, can you just be my safe place? I need to get some stuff off my chest. Boom, 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 boom. That does not exist anywhere in the Bible other than to say, fools, do that. The Bible warns against it. There is no thanks for being a safe place for me. In fact, if you go, don't miss this. If you go around saying thanks for being a safe place for me in terms of venting, I don't mean in terms of a healthy relationship. We all need safe places when it comes to healthy relationships and good conversations. But if you vent about others and you call that your safe place, you are unsafe for the relationships in the church around you because you're separating close friends. Don't do that. Contain the conflict. Contain the conflict. Now, I can hear some of you in my head saying, uh, does that even healthy? I mean, that, that can't be good. I should not keep this to myself. I'm glad you said that, and I love when your questions agree with my outline, by the way, because the next step is to actually reconcile the conflict. You shouldn't keep it to yourself. I agree. God agrees. 
You should not keep your conflict inside. And you go, well, what's my alternative to venting? Well, it says it right there in the scripture. A wise person quietly holds back their spirit. In an act of self-control, in an act of self-control, hold back the heat of the moment until you cool off and then decide with your brain what to do next. Wait. Quietly hold it back. And then finally, you're going to need to act. Third, reconcile the conflict. You actually take steps. Go and reconcile the conflict. Directly, lovingly, and soon. Directly, right to the person. Lovingly, kind-hearted. You know what I mean? Hey, there's something between us right now. You might not have even known about it, but I would love to talk with you about this because I care about our relationship. Let's talk. So directly, lovingly, and soon. Why soon? Listen to Jesus right here in Matthew chapter 5. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, meaning if you're doing the most sacred, uninterruptible thing that you can possibly think of, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, or assumedly if you have something against them, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Stop the worship service. Stop church. Literally walk out. Leave what you were doing there. Leave your religious right. Leave your quiet time. Leave your community group. Do whatever you need to do because what God is saying is he wants you to relate well with them before you relate well with him. That's massive. I've had people come up to me in this room, in fact, when I was standing um, in worship, in those songs that we sang earlier. People in that moment of the church service have tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, because of what Jesus said, I'd love to just invest a couple minutes in our relationship. And could we step outside the room for a second and just talk? And I say, yes. That would make me joyful because I don't want to be in here lifting my hands, singing songs to Jesus while it's not well with me and the people in this room. I don't want to do that. Jesus tells us not to do that. So go directly, go lovingly, and go soon. Reconcile the conflict. Number one, sort the conflict. Number two, um, which means don't sweat the small stuff. Number two, contain the conflict. Don't spread the big stuff. Third, reconcile the conflict. Go directly, go lovingly, and go soon. Now, can you imagine, I know that was a plenty of content, can you imagine for a second, if you started to practice that, what would happen in your life? Can you imagine how different it would be, dad, in the house, if dad did that? Can you imagine how different it would have been if your dad had done that? Can you imagine how different it would be, mom, in your marriage, if you started to practice this? If you're a boss or you have employees, how different would it be in your office if you chose to sort your conflict? Hey, I'm not going to give huge reactions to small things. If you chose to contain the conflict, hey, I'm not going to go down the hall and turn into the wrong office and start to share this. I'm going to turn into the office of the person it actually affects. Can you imagine how different it would be if you directly and lovingly and quickly went to the people around you? It would change everything. It would change the culture of your relationships. This is powerful, powerful stuff. And you know what? Even I know that there are, there are new people in this room every single week. And I want you to know, we know you're here. We're glad you're here. And by the way, if you've been away from God or away from church and this is not really your thing and you're here this morning, I would love to tell you particularly that this is a great way that you can just kind of plug and play with what the Bible tells you to do. You don't even have to sign on yet to be a Christian if you don't want to. If you're still kind of testing the waters and you want to kind of see if this is for you, why don't you take these things and try them in your life, in your relationships, and see what happens. People are going to notice. People are going to start to come up to you and go, hey, what happened to you? What's different? Are you turning over a new leaf? You know, like, what is the deal here? And you know what? Here's the thing. You don't even have to give church any credit. You just say, ah, I've been thinking. You don't have to give anybody any credit. 
This will change everything around you. It'll change your relationships. It'll change your marriage. It'll change your office. If you decide, hey, I'm not going to give full vent to my spirit. I'm not going to look for a safe place where I can destroy another person. What I'm going to actually do is I'm going to wait, quietly hold my spirit back. I'm not going to lose the battle to the heat of the moment. I'm going to decide with my brain what to do next. I'm not going to let my opinion swell up inside me. Sort the conflict. First, I'm going to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I'm going to sort my conflict, contain it, and then I'm going to reconcile it. I'd love to finish with this story. My, uh, my wife and I just went to do a wedding um, in California last weekend. And uh, it, the wedding was on a Sunday. We flew out on Saturday, so this was about eight days ago. And we got to San Francisco very early in the morning. And, uh, and our bag was not there. I know some of you have had this happen. So we went to the um, armpit of the entire galaxy, which is the lost luggage counter. And uh, so we went there, and uh, there was a very nice woman behind there, and she, she said, we will deliver your bag to you. Are you within 250 miles of San Francisco? I said, yes, we are. She said, we will deliver your bag to you between 7 and 9 p.m. I said, that is fantastic news. We will look for the bag between 7 and 9 p.m. She said, Where, uh, what's the address? I said, well, between 7, I looked at my wife, and she said, well, between 7 and 9, we're at the rehearsal dinner. So give them the address to the restaurant. And I said, are you sure that between 7 and 9? Because I'm going to give you the address to the restaurant. She said, between 7 and 9 p.m. it will be there. So I said, okay, well, here's the address to this restaurant. And she, um, she said, between 7 and 9 it will be there. But you should still call your, your delivery company, which is a different company, which is super convenient. Uh, it's a different company. There's a little vent right there. Sorry about that. <laughs> so a little fire right there. Okay. Okay. Um, and so she said, but you should definitely call um, the delivery company still at 3 p.m., okay, just to make sure everything is confirmed. I said, we will absolutely do that. And so 3 p.m. rolls around. Um, we still have not gotten to check in to our little bed and breakfast. We've been in the transportation system all day. We're, uh, we're tired and not in just the best mood. And you know how it is when y- your possessions have been taken away from you. It shouldn't matter, you know, it shouldn't matter. But then all of a sudden it starts to matter and you're like, she's going to have to wear the same clothes that she flew into the rehearsal dinner. And all of a sudden it just kind of starts to matter and you get tired and you get frustrated. You, some of you have lost a bag and you know how this is. So we, uh, my wife calls the delivery company at three o'clock and she says, um, hi, my name is Gabby, and uh, you guys have one of my bags, and I just wanted to call and make sure that you guys are going to have the bag to this address between 7 and 9 p.m., and this guy starts going off. And her face immediately, I don't know, for, for reasons we still don't know and are mystified by, frankly, and he just starts talking, and his tone goes up, and I can kind of hear, hear him, and she kind of goes like that, and her face is just kind of first appalled, but then I can tell she's upset because it's been a long day, and she's starting to get upset, and that just makes me like, oh, I'm so over-the-top frustrated. And so I, so I like held out my hand for the phone. She handed me the phone, and this guy, I can hear him. I mean, he just, he's talking, and he's saying, you know, you and he doesn't know he's talking to a different person at this point, and he says, we don't even have the bag. You don't even know what you're asking. You're making this hard on yourself. I mean, he's at about an 8 out of 10. For just because we did exactly what we were told to do. And so that's where he's at. And so um, a miracle of God happened, and I quietly held my spirit back. And I said, and I got this message ringing in my ears. I kind of had a free pass because I knew I was going to get up here and say this stuff, and I knew I couldn't blow up on the guy and then come up here and preach this message. So I kind of had a free pass because I was thinking about this. And I just thought, okay, quick to listen, slow to speak. And so he's talking, he's talking, he's talking. I said, sir, this is Garrett. I'm Gabby's husband. I would love to handle a phone call from here. What are you trying to communicate? Stop. I was proud of that. And then he said, 
And he said, what I'm telling you is, he, he lowered his tone. It was amazing. I didn't know that was going to happen. He lowered his tone and he said, hey, between 7 and 9 p.m. is when we get the bag, not deliver it. I said, that's new information to us, but we can accommodate that no problem. Let me give you a different address. He said, okay. Gave him the different address. He said, if you're, he said your driver is going to call you between 7 to 9 p.m. I, I said, at this point, I'm ready for Jesus to come back between 7 and 9 p.m. This is crazy. And so he said, your driver is going to call you between 7 and 9 p.m. If you don't miss that call, you will have your bag tonight. I said, we will not miss that call. We will not miss that call, I guarantee you. And we hung up the phone. And then at midnight, a man named Ernie, who I had never met before, called me from a California phone number. I woke up and he said, hey man, I'm outside with your bag. I like looked out the, the window, there's headlights there, and some man is there with my possessions in, at midnight. And guys, we won. Okay, we got the bag. That was it. All right, but I, I want to tell you this. Why, why, why was it important to control that fo- original phone conversation? The answer is because he had something I wanted. Think about that. He had something I wanted. If I get mad and I lose about all the heat of the moment, it was plenty heated. I mean, Gabby is heated. He's heated. California is heated. I'm heated. It is hot. And, and so the people in the restaurant are looking at my wife crying. They probably think I'm the problem. That's bothering me a little bit. And so the whole thing is just bad. And right there in the moment, I'm thinking, you know what? I got to be quick to listen, slow to speak, because if I cloud the communication line with a bunch of anger, I'm not going to get what I want. And I could have been totally right. I could have, I, we could have gone war of the words and I would have been totally right. Cause after all, this is my wife you're talking to and you need to lower your tone and you're way out of bounds and who is your manager and blah, blah, blah. I could have gone down all those roads, but then I might've lost the bag and the bag was most important. Here's what I want to tell you. When you are in conflict in the heat of the moment, The other person always, always, always has something that you want, namely a relationship with you. Anytime you are in a conflict with someone you care about, the truth is you care about them and you want them to care about you. And behind the the curtains of any conflict kind of lurking in the background, which we're so quick to forget in the heat of the moment, is that we want a relationship with this person. And if we mismanage the heat of the moment and cloud the conversation with all this anger and angst, we might actually lose what we want most. We might forget that we're talking to someone, that we want a good relationship more than anything else. Not to be right, to have a real relationship. That's what we want most. But the heat of the moment says, you know what, the relationship's less important than being right. This is the hill I'm going to die on. That's what's most important. But the truth is, here's what you already know. If you argue like you have nothing to lose, eventually you may, mind up, you may wind up with nothing worth keeping. If you argue as if you have nothing to lose, you might wind up with nothing worth keeping, with no relationships that are in, healthy, in a healthy state, with no relationships that are enjoyable, with no relationships that are joyful, with nothing but regret. The truth is there's always something you want. That's more important than you being right. And that is love and relationship and peace between you and your son, between you and your daughter, between you and your husband, your wife, your boss. The thing you want is at stake in the heat of the moment. And I don't want us to miss it. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Let's pray together. God, we admit that um, our frustrations just seem sometimes to demand uh, to come out of us. We find ourselves angry. We find ourselves forgetting what we want. We find ourselves forgetting what you want for us. 
Sometimes we find ourselves in the insane position of trying to be right when there's a better way. Somehow being in relationship peacefully with the people that matter most, somehow in the heat of the moment doesn't matter most anymore. It seems like it goes down the priority list and maybe something else comes up. A resentment or an anger or a frustration, God. And we know that if we are angry, it will not produce the rightness that you want for us. Not really. So God, I pray for our families here. I pray for our friendships here. I pray for our community groups here. I pray that we would sort our conflicts wisely in our head. We would contain them thoughtfully and then appropriately give an outlet for relief, which is relationship, reconciliation directly. God, I pray we'd be a church more like you. I pray we'd be the church um, that will be in heaven where everything is happening by open statement of the truth. Nothing hidden, no resentments piled up over time, but we're existing in harmony. I pray that we'd be that in our city, that we'd encourage the people watching, and that we'd relate to you well, God, in Jesus' name.